One of the things that is really, really unique about the Gospel of Mark is the speed in which it is written. Uh, this is a book, unlike the other Gospels, by the way, who they take some time, especially at the beginning, to talk about theology or the Gospel story, uh, genealogies in the Gospel of Matthew, but not so in the book of Mark. Mark is a book where he, when he begins, he hits the ground running. It's fast-paced, it's high-octane, it's Red Bull. I mean, there's not a whole lot of time for details, kind of the ancient world version of Twitter, where every single word counts. And the upside of having a book like this is that it's action-packed, it keeps your attention, it's hard to fall asleep, it moves from story to story. But the downside to it is that sometimes you have to pause and you have to ask yourself, Okay, what is it that Mark is actually trying to say? Because Mark's goal, his intent and purpose is not just to give us a bunch of stories. No, Mark, he's more subversive than that. What he's trying to do is develop a theology, a theology of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do in our life. And such is the case in our text this evening. Because here in Mark chapter 1, at the surface level, it seems to be all about a guy called John the Baptist, or as I like to call him, J the B. And at first you think, okay, this is an interesting story about this crazy hippie who's baptizing people. But actually, when you begin to dig a little bit beneath the surface, you find that there's a whole lot more that's going on, that Mark is teaching us something about the heart and the nature of God and his intention to restore his people to himself. And so with that, well, let's dive in and we'll just start in verse one of our text. It says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so the book begins with Mark quoting, he says, from Isaiah the prophet. Now, what's interesting is that this is a quote not just from Isaiah the prophet, but it's also a quote from Exodus and the book of Malachi, which raises the question, well, why would he attribute it to Isaiah when he's including these other guys with the quote as well? Well, one answer to that is that Isaiah is the predominant Old Testament influence for Mark. When he writes, he is frequently referring to this passage. A second reason is that in the first century AD, kind of the way that the Jewish people thought and wrote, when they would reference a source, they would also have in mind numerous other sources that were attached and connected and related to it. So this little phrase, verses 2 and 3, is really a conglomeration of Exodus, Malachi, 
and Isaiah. And as I said earlier, when he's quoting these things, he's doing so subversively. He is building out a theology of who Jesus is. And so what I want to do real quickly is, well, let's have a look at these passages that he's quoting from. And let's see what we can learn from them. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me now, all the way back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 23. And as you know, Exodus 23 is right in the middle of the Exodus story. So God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt. He had brought Israel through the waters of the Red Sea, across the wilderness, over the Jordan, and into the promised land. And now here in Exodus 23, verse 20, God speaks over his people and he gives them a promise. Check it out. Verse 20, it says, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So here is God's promise to the nation of Israel that we're on this 40-year trek through the wilderness into the promised land. And what we have to understand about this story is that Exodus is absolutely fundamental and essential to the Jewish narrative. It was the paradigm for Israel's history, both past and future. And every year, the Jewish people, they would gather together, and we see this to this day in Israel, to celebrate, to commemorate all the things that God had done for their ancestors. And so they eat the lamb, they break the bread, they tell the stories of how God had brought them into freedom, how he had passed over Israel while they were in Egypt. So it was the story of Exodus that forged their identity and shaped their worldview for years and years to come. So Mark begins this story by referencing the Exodus story. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons is he's teaching us that the story of Jesus is going to look in some way, in some fashion, it's going to look like a new Exodus that Jesus is going to be all about bringing people who were in bondage and slavery, setting them free, liberating them from their captivity, and across a wilderness and towards a promised land. So here we have quote number one, but he also quotes from the book of Isaiah. And so if you want to turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll see the second one. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1. Now, here in Isaiah, we're skipping forward some 900 years. And just like in the book of Exodus, how they were in bondage to the Egyptians back then, well, here in Isaiah, they're in bondage to the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And beginning here in chapter 40, what God is doing is he's wanting to encourage and console his people who were filled with despair and hopelessness. Check it out, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And here's the quote from Mark, verse three, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths in the desert, a highway for our God. So here God gives this amazing prophecy about the future, about the end of exile. He reminds them that there is hope, that a day is coming when he will return to restore and to renew his people. Now, you've probably noticed this already, but here in Isaiah, again, it's filled with Exodus imagery. He talks about a wilderness and the desert and the glory of God. All of this is Exodus type of language. So Isaiah is saying, look, when Messiah comes, it's going to be like a new Exodus. We will be brought from a place of slavery across the wilderness into the land of of promise. So we're seeing a theme here. Exodus in Exodus 23, Exodus in Isaiah chapter 40, but there's one more passage. This time, turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, um, <laughs> the Italian prophet. Malachi chapter 3. That wasn't even close to being funny. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Interesting. So here, Malachi, he, he begins by giving a promise of God's return. He says, when the Lord comes back, he will set the world straight. He will put an end to injustice. And like a fire, he will purify that which has been made corrupt. Now, this is interesting. The point here that Malachi is making is that that day is assured. It's going to happen. And until that day, he is calling his people to be ready, to prepare the way, because a messenger will come, and shortly after this messenger, God himself will come to his people. So this is the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, and now we come back to the Gospel of Mark. Turn with me back to Mark chapter 1. Keep in mind that between Malachi and Mark, some 400 years have gone by. So Malachi gives this promise, God's going to come, a messenger will come, God's going to restore us. It's the end of exile, it's in sight. But then 400 years go by with no visions, with no prophets, with no revelation. 
The heavens are silent and the people as a whole are on pins and needles waiting. When will Messiah come? They're waiting for his return. They're waiting for the end of exile. They're waiting for the messenger who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, can you imagine then the impact that these words must have had? When Mark explodes on the scene, beginning his book this way, he says, a voice, which right off the bat would get their attention because there had been no voice, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him and silvers for John the Baptist. J the B appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So Mark begins in an explosive, dynamic, powerful way by saying, look, the one that Israel has been waiting for, the messenger who would come to prepare the way of the Lord, he is now here. And his name is John the Baptist. And John's whole job was to get the people ready for this amazing event that was about to take place. You know, when you're about to go meet someone important, let's say you're about to have an interview at work or you're going to meet with the CEO, you're taking a girl out on the date, well, generally, you want to put your best foot forward, you do a little shaving, get some new clothes or what have you. It's like what they say in England, um, everywhere the queen goes, it smells of fresh paint. And in a sense, that's what is happening here. John the Baptist, he's like, hey, repaint and be baptized, right? He's saying, we need to get ready. That was kind of a joke. That was a really, and you're disobeying Brooke because he said you're supposed to laugh and you didn't even laugh at that. <laughs> it was a good one. No, it wasn't. I actually had guys when I was a pastor in Maui, I had a couple of college guys who would hold up little signs, like scoring my jokes. It was like 2.3 or whatever. It was really discouraging. <laughs> He's saying, look, we need to get ready. Um, years ago, some of you know this, I was a missionary in a place called Vanuatu, which is like in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we, we lived in the jungle for three years, teaching a group of guys going through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you've seen Castaway, it was something like that. <laughs> and, and so while we were there, um, we kind of adopted this uh, Jack Sparrow motif. Um, where we kind of grew out our hair and what facial hair we had, we're growing it out and it was pretty nasty looking, but we didn't care. I mean, there was no prospect of dating anyone out there. We were just in the middle of nowhere. But all of that changed when we received our tickets to go home. <laughs> I remember how excited I was. I go back into my hut and I actually had a box that I kept for this occasion. I open up the box, and inside the box was a Ziploc bag where I'd kept special clothes just for the occasion of when I would go home, take off the loincloth, get these clothes out, right? I get the razor, I shave, I take a shower, which consisted of put a bucket of water over your head. I gave myself a haircut, which was a complete disaster. Now, I did all that. Why? Because I had this hope, and, and, and when I got off the plane, I didn't want to give my mom a heart attack. 
I didn't want her to think, dear God, what is that thing coming towards me? Is, is that his face or is a possum stuck in his collar, right? Yeah, I was preparing the way. And, and, and in a sense, that's what John is doing. He's like, guys, we're going home. It's the end of exile. Messiah is about to return. And to get ready for that event, we need to get our hearts in a place where we can receive what he is about to do. So this was his message. Now, how did the people respond to that? Well, check out verse 5. It says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sin, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. It says the whole countryside, all the people of Jerusalem. I mean, we're talking a ton of people, possibly tens of thousands of people who are coming days possibly, traveling to get into the wilderness to hear what John has to say. And it says when they get there, they're being baptized by him. Where? In the Jordan. Now here we have more Exodus imagery. You see, scholars believe the place where John the Baptist was baptizing was the exact same spot where the children of Israel crossed from the wilderness into the promised land. This was John's way of saying the new exodus has begun. God is about to return. He's going to take us out of exile. We need to get ready for that. And if we could have been there back then, man, there would have been a sense of excitement and anticipation, enthusiasm, revival was in the air. And God was using the most unlikely of person to do it, John the Baptist. I mean, check out this description, verse 6. It says that John wore clothing made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, he ate locusts and wild honey. So here's the description of this guy, camel's hair, a leather belt, he ate locusts and wild honey. And in other words, I think he would have fit really well in Southeast Portland, right? We're talking organic um, locusts that he himself has raised, camel skin, from Goodwill, <laughs> Urkel glasses, right? I mean, here's a guy that he's definitely not your typical religious leader. And maybe that was the point. In fact, we know from the Old Testament that the prophets, they said that the, mes the messenger who comes, he would be like Elijah. And, and you know from 2 Kings chapter 1, that's how it Elijah dressed. He, he was one of the first hippies, right? He, he dressed in this way. And, and in the book of Malachi, again, the last chapter of the Old Testament, it says, I am sending Elijah. He will be that messenger. And so John, he is the fulfillment of that. And, and what I love about this is that everything about this story is absolutely unconventional and out of the box. I mean, this is not the kind of stuff that you would read in a church growth book. Uh, I mean, think about it. A revival's taking place in the strangest of locations, in the wilderness. 
People are traveling hours, if not days, to get there. It's hot, it's arid, it's dry. And yet it was there that God wanted to do something. He's using this guy, John, who had a strange sense of fashion, camel skin, and a strange diet, locusts, and a very strange message, repent and be baptized. I mean, nothing about this, at least from a pragmatic perspective, made any sense at all. And yet, isn't that how God works? And wasn't it Paul who said that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? He uses people who recognize their own inability and inadequacy and who know that they don't have what it takes to do what God is calling them to do. And I would suggest that if we're in that place where we think, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, I don't know how could God could ever use me, we are the prime candidate for God to use. Because it's been said before that what God's been look, looking for is not great ability, but great availability. And, and if like John, we're willing to say, Lord, I'll be that voice crying in the wilderness of my office at work. I'll be that voice crying in the wilderness with, with my roommates. I'll be that voice for you in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be that voice for you as you take me throughout Portland. If we're willing, God will empower us and fill us and use us in spite of our inadequacy. It's by the power of his spirit. And so John, here he is, this wild-haired, wild-eyed hippie baptizing people in the Jordan River. And this was his message. Check out verse 7. He said, after me comes one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You know, this was John's way of saying, the one who's coming after me, the one who I am preparing everything for, he's not just a man. He, he's much more than that. And, and we see hints of that already right at the beginning of our text when, when it says, prepare the way for who? The Lord. Yahweh. So Jesus is Yahweh. What Mark is saying, what John is saying, is that the creator of the universe is manifested as Jesus. Or to put it another way, the coming of Jesus is the coming of God, which then explains the next thing that John says. He says, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals which in the ancient world, that was the job of a slave. In fact, in the, the Jewish Talmud, it actually says of all the jobs that a slave had to do, none was more menial than the task of untying someone's sandal. So what John is saying is, look, I am not even worthy to be called the slave of Christ, the one who is coming. It's God himself. He is the one who's to lead us out of Egypt into the land of promise. And then he says this, verse 8, I am baptizing you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, my baptism is just a preview of coming attractions. That when the Lord comes, 
He's going to be baptizing you with something far, far better. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which, check this out, this would have been absolutely shocking, maybe even scandalous to John's audience. You know, we read about the, the baptism of the Spirit and the Spirit empowering people for ministry, and we, we say, of course, yeah, that's what the Spirit of God does. But in the Old Testament, their theology of the Holy Spirit, well, it was believed that the Spirit would only come upon a select few. So he would come upon prophets and priests and kings. And to symbolize that, they would be anointed with oil. But as far as we can tell, the average Joe in Israel wasn't empowered by the Spirit in this way. But what you also find in the Old Testament are these excited whispers of the prophets who would look forward to a day when God's Spirit would be poured out on all people. And there's tons of passages that speak into this, but one you may wish to jot down. I love it. It's found in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it says this, Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days. So that was God's promise and prophecy. And what John is saying is, look, that prophecy that Joel gave hundreds of years ago is about to be fulfilled God is going to baptize us in his spirit. He's going to draw us out of exile. We are going into the promised land. Can you see now why thousands and thousands of people came to hear what John was saying? These were people in the first century who were in exile. Oh, they weren't in bondage in Egypt or under the Babylonians. No, they were in bondage in Rome. And they were disoriented with years of oppression. These were a people that were desperate for God to work. And it was in this deafening context of silence and struggle that the voice of God was beginning to break through. The one that they had been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years was about to appear. God was about to do something new in their life. That is why they came. That is why there was such a sense of anticipation as they stood at the banks of the Jordan River. And you see, brothers and sisters, I think it's at this point that this story of J the B intersects with our lives here tonight. Because I think so many of us, as I was praying it through this last week, <laughs> the Lord really spoke into my heart um, that, that many of us are in the same place where these people were at. These are people that are hoping, yearning, waiting, praying that God would show up and fulfill his promises and take them to the other side. And I think for many of us, that is in a sense where we are at in life. Like these people, there are some of us tonight 
and we're standing at the edge of a Jordan River. And, and you have this sense that, that God is about to do something new. You have this sense that God is about to open doors in your life. You have the sense that he's about to bring you into a new season, but until that time, well, you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to open those doors. And if you're like me at all, man, I struggle with waiting. Patience is not something I'm strong at. I, I, I love that prayer that says, God, give me patience now right? It's something that's hard. I don't like waiting. And, and, and as we're waiting, it's so easy for us to get discouraged. You know, I, I know that some of you, you've been waiting at the banks of the Jordan, and maybe it's for you, your marriage. And you believe that God has something so much more for you guys, that he wants to bring you beyond the tension and the conflict and the unforgiveness. And it's like you can see the other side. You can see what it is that God is wanting to do in you and through you. But so far, it has not yet been happening. Maybe for others in here, God's given you a vision for a vocation or a business or a company, and you have all these dreams, all these ideas, all these ambitions, ways that you could use it for the kingdom of God, and yet you've been waiting. You're standing at the edge of the Jordan. God, would you open that door? Would you make it possible? And, and until now, it hasn't yet occurred. Maybe for some of you, you're standing at the edge of a Jordan, and your Jordan is singleness. And you've been waiting and praying, God, would you bring me a wife? Would you bring me a husband? And maybe for some of you, you've been waiting so long, you're like, I don't care if she looks like John the Baptist at this point. She can use my razor. You know, Lord, just bring someone, bring, bring anyone in my life. That's a tough place to be. You know, I, I know for me and my wife and, and for the Raleigh team, uh, where this impacts our life is we're, we're standing at the edge of a Jordan. You know, in a couple months, we're about to, to cross over to a whole new land, a, a land of cornhole and place where they say y'all. And, and, and there's some things that we have to adapt to. And, and we're in the season, okay, what's going to be on the other side? And, and we know that when we get there, it's not all going to be good. Now, part of it will. There's 217 days on average of sun there. Praise God. Just found that out. <laughs> but there's also going to be a ton of challenges, right? And pastoring is hard work. It's difficult. Planning a church is insanely difficult. And, and you see this in, in the Old Testament. When they crossed into the promised land, it wasn't all easy. There were giants in the land, right? There, there were challenges and difficulties. And, and so we're at this place. Okay, God, we're ready to go. But, but the question is, when we're at the edge of the Jordan, when we're in the season of waiting, singleness, marriage, ministry, business. Maybe you're praying for someone. You've been praying for them for years and years and years. Lord, would you save him? Would you save her? Your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your coworker, and they've been heavy on your heart and you're at the edge of the Jordan because you know that God wants to rescue them. You know that God wants to bring them into the promised land. Here's the question. What do we do in those seasons where we're waiting? What do we do when we're standing at the edge of the Jordan River and we're just ready to go, but God has not yet said go? 
And as I was chewing on this, it struck me, well, back to John the Baptist, he is standing in the Jordan and he says, this is what we need to do. Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for his feet. In other words, he's saying, do whatever you have to do right now to be ready for when God tells you to go. Now again, this is Exodus imagery, right? You guys remember the story in the book of Joshua? They're right about to cross the same Jordan River and Joshua comes to the children of Israel. He says, tomorrow, God is going to do amazing things in your midst. Tomorrow, we are going to cross the Jordan River. And he said, this is what I want you to do now. Consecrate yourself, sanctify yourself, purify yourself, get ready for what God is about to do. I believe, brothers and sisters, that that is a word for some of us here tonight. God's heart for you, God's promise to you, is I am about to do something in your life. You're at the edge of the Jordan, and you've been there, maybe not 400 years, but 40 or four, and you're ready to go. And God is saying, prepare the way. Make straight paths for your feet. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it'll look different for, for each one of us. John's message to prepare the way was this. First of all, he said what? Repent. And for some of us, if we're to go into the next season, if we're going to cross over the Jordan River, it might mean that we have some repenting to do. Maybe there's some things that we've taken with us from Egypt, from our old life, some habits and addictions and struggles, anger, gossip, pornography, bitterness, unforgiveness, and we've been carrying it with us as we've been going through the wilderness, and now we're at the Jordan River, and God's saying, no, you need to stop. You need to let that go. I'm not letting you take that over to the other side, and I know it's hard. I know it's difficult to let go of those things, but trust me, what I have for you is so much better. You know, as, as I mentioned, my wife and I, we, we lived in Hawaii uh, a number of years ago, suffering for Jesus like you do in the islands. And I was pastoring a church out there, and one of the things when when you live in Hawaii, um, that you deal with is cockroaches. I mean, there's tons of them. They're always coming in the house, and and you can imagine my horror then when I walk out into our living room and our one-year-old daughter, she's eight now, she was one at the time, was sitting there in the living room chomping down on this two-inch long cockroach. <laughs> and so I run to her. I'm like, no. And I grab this thing. For, and the weird thing is like, she's enjoying it. Like maybe they taste good. I don't know. Tastes like chicken, right? And I take it away from her and she just comes unglued. She just starts screaming and yelling and looking at me with these piercing eyes. And I know if she could have talked back then, it would have been something like this. Dad, you are so mean. How could you do that to me? You have no idea, dad, how good that was. It was crunchy on the outside. It was soft in the center. It's just this amazing culinary experience. <laughs> you 
see, as her father, I'm like terrified. No, that thing's going to make you sick. There's disease and there's germs. And, and how many times has our father come to us, what are you doing? You're eating what? You're going where? You're looking at that? You're, you're kidding me. That stuff is going to make you sick. What I have for you is health and vibrancy and joy and shalom. It's called the promised land. And if we want to get to that point, it might mean that we need to repent. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, do what with it? Cut it off. He didn't say, well, you know, put a glove on it, stick it in your back pocket, pretend it's not there. I said, get rid of it. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? You pluck it out. He didn't say, well, put a patch over it, you know, just look out the other eye. No, obviously Jesus isn't being literal or else we'd all be blind and handless, right? But, but he is being very powerful. He's saying, if we're not radical with sin, sin is going to completely wipe us out and destroy us. And you want to get to the promised land. You want to get to this next season. Begin with repentance. That's what John does. Prepare the way. Prepare the way in your heart for the Lord. Secondly, he says, we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And maybe for some of us, you're at this point where you see what God has for you and it's overwhelming and it's daunting, it's exciting, it's invigorating, you can't wait to get there, but you also realize there's no way on God's green earth that you can do it alone. Do you ever feel that way? It's like, God, you've given me this vision, but I need help. <laughs> I need you. And what we need, brothers and sisters, is the Spirit of God. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And if you're here tonight, you would say, I just need a fresh filling and empowering and anointing with God's spirit. That's available for you. I'd encourage you when we're done with this in about three hours, you can go to the back and we'd just love to pray with you and, and ask God's spirit to come upon you. Finally, number three, he, he is calling people to salvation. He's saying, look, you need to get right with God. And listen, it could be tonight that there are some here and you have not yet given your life to the Lord. Maybe you haven't fully surrendered to him. Maybe like the Exodus story, you're still stuck in Egypt and you're in chains. And if you're honest, you know it. It's chains of sin or anger, or bitterness, chains of guilt and shame. Listen, Jesus wants to set you free. He has so much for you. He wants to bless you and fill you and use you. He wants to empower you and anoint you and equip you. He wants to set you free from the burdens and the baggage from the past. And if you're here tonight and you would say, I know I need to get right with God. Maybe it's just an accident that you're here. Maybe someone invited you or maybe you just happened to be driving by and you came in. Listen, it's not an accident. The Lord desires tonight to give you a new life. And if you would say tonight, man, I need a clean slate. I need a fresh start. You know, one of the best ways I think that that can take place is through the waters of baptism. Remember the Exodus story, the first thing they did right when they got out of Egypt was what? They're baptized in the Red Sea. They go right through the waters. They're brought out to the other side, through the Jordan, into the land of promise. And baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Maybe there's a bunch of baggage in your life tonight that you just need to drown, that you need to get rid of. 
Baptism is a way that can happen. You go under the water, you're dying to all that stuff, you're pulled out of the water, and you are given a new life. The Bible says you have become a new creation in Christ. But you might say, well, I didn't bring my baptism clothes. That's okay. You think these people here in the story of John the Baptist were like, oh, oh man, I forgot my baptism clothes. I have to travel three days to go back. No, they're like, okay, let, let's do this thing. And they were willing to come to those waters where this wild-eyed, long-haired, massive beard, locusts hanging from it, <laughs> crazy hippie called John the Baptist was saying, repent, be baptized, prepare the way of the Lord, because that, brothers and sisters, is God's heart for us tonight. He has a new exodus for you, a new season for you, He's going to take you into the land. And the question is, will we say yes to that invitation? And will we prepare the way of the Lord? Amen? Let's pray, shall we? God, thank you so much tonight for loving us, for pursuing us, and for saving us. God, we were the ones who were in bondage. We were the ones who were enslaved. God, we had so much baggage. And, and we thank you, Jesus, that, that by your grace, we have been set free from all that. And he who the Son sets free shall be free indeed. And Father, I pray this evening that if there's any here who don't yet know you, who have not fully surrendered to you. If there's any here who want to get baptized, God, I pray that tonight would be the night that they would stop running and surrender and find the hope and the joy and the peace that is found in you. Lord, would you stir hearts? Would you convict? Would you comfort? And Lord, for those of us tonight who need a fresh filling of your spirit, as we worship you now, we invite your spirit to come, to fall on us, to fill us, to flood this place. Oh God, we need you. We need you. And we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.